Welcome to Most Popular, the podcast that can celebrate the rainbow flag and tell you about the person who made it. That guy's name was Gilbert Baker, by the way. He died in 2017, but he was given the task of creating the rainbow flag. So we salute you, sir. I'm Dr. Adrian Trierbenik, your host, and in case you are hearing this for the first time, I am a real-life college professor of sociology, and I created this podcast to combine my two loves, pop culture, and the impact it has on our lives. Today I am talking with one of my favorite people that I have um, had the pleasure of talking to and learning from as I've started this podcast and as I've kind of tried to figure out how to combine these two worlds that I find to be so fascinating. So um, before the pandemic, I'm talking like, you know, two, three months um, before the pandemic started, there was a new season of Queer Eye that came out on Netflix. And um, I started watching it during the, the pandemic in the beginning. And there was this episode, it was season five, and it was uh, season five, episode one, and it's when the um, the team went in to help a pastor, Pastor Noah, uh, who was a gay pastor who had come out in his 30s, and he was trying to find the confidence. As I was watching, one of the people who was brought in to cheerlead him uh, was uh, the Reverend Reverend Dr. Megan Rohr. Uh, and one of the things they said during the episode that that stuck with me and I'm paraphrasing because, you know, I don't have the transcript, but uh, one of the things they said that stuck with me was, um, you are a child of God, and who are you to uh, not follow this path that's been laid out for you? And basically, they kept reiterating, everyone's a child of God. And I I just thought, you know, this person is someone that I would like to talk to. And I sent a like a totally random direct message through Instagram, completely know nothing about them, never met them in my life, just a complete prayer of, you know, hey, maybe we could talk about this sometime. I have this podcast I started for my students. And they immediately res- responded and said, yeah, happy to. Let me know what time. So in 2020, we spoke for the first time. And then we have since revisited the conversation in 2023. Um, so this is the newer version of our of our discussion. But I'm very excited to bring this conversation to you. Megan, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, for starters, uh, my pronouns are she, her, which we've talked about in class. Uh, Megan's pronouns are they, he. The, doc- the Reverend Dr. Megan Rohr is the first openly transgender bishop and is the one of the first uh, transgender Lutheran uh, reverends. Um, in the church. They are an award-winning, award-winning filmmaker. Um, they are known for their work with the homeless and their work with the San Francisco Police Department. Um, for a long time, they served as the chaplain for the San Francisco Police Department and have been working with homeless people and and um, unhoused folks for probably about 20 years. They'll talk about it a little bit more. I actually uh, started this episode with having Megan introduce themselves because their accomplishments are things that I just cannot even start to list for you. And I like it when people uh, talk about themselves. Uh, It kind of is a nice way to celebrate them. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. My name is Megan. My grandma calls me the Reverend Dr. Megan Rar, but most people don't say that. (laughs) My pronouns are he and they. Um, I have worn a lot of hats in my life, which means that um, some people know me as a pastor. Some people know me as the person who um, eats with the homeless and takes people to social security office. Some people know me as the loud person with the bullhorn at the beginning of 
giant <laughs> protest marches. Some people have known me as a city employee. Uh, and some people have known me as a chaplain to the San Francisco Police Department, like in the full uniform. Uh, my, my two black trans kids know me as their papa. And uh, I think I just know myself as a work in progress who tries each day to do the best I can and then uh, overthinks whether or not I said the wrong thing when I go home from a party. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love having conversations with people. And then, you know, the anxiety sets in about 10 minutes later of like, oh, man, really? That's what came out? Okay, sure. Uh, there's a few people who think I'm a social influencer. <laughs> and, and know me from being on Netflix Queer Eye, but that's a whole nother story. I mean, that's how I found you was on Queer Eye. I've told you this before, but when you looked at, so you were in the episode, um, I forget the man's, Noah was the man's name, yep. who was an out reverend like yourself. And you were trying to talk to them about dating and being out. And you said, you know, you are a, a child of God. And that has stuck with me indefinitely i mean it will always stick with me the way that you handled that situation because that seems to be your thing is like we're all children of god this is what we're here for yeah yeah well and and if you want the nerdy background story for that too it's a very kind of trans background story is um, back in the 1500s in the like <laughs> let's say it's like 1517 the printing press is just being invented martin luther's real mad at the church uh and creates sort of this this uprising of the people because they had a pandemic and then they lost their minds and got angry. Martin Luther, they try to like kill him. They're like, you're the worst, get out of town. And so his friends kidnap him and take him to this hill called Wartburg Castle. And he pretends to be a knight named George. And he, during his little like timeout, decides he's going to translate the Bible. And in my imagination, I always thought it was like just him translating the Bible all alone because he was such a smart dude. But he had like 12 Bible scholars and some of them would do the, the Greek portion that's about Jesus and the Hebrew portion that's about um, all of the children of Abraham. And then they would give him the translations and then he would take their literal translations and make them into poetry. Um, his version of the Bible in German is one of the first times real people got to hold a Bible in their hands because the printing press and because no one had like translated it. It was always in Latin or in Greek and you had to know these ancient languages and people couldn't have their own relationship with God. They had to just trust whatever a priest would tell them who was speaking the words of God in a different language. And, and so what he did is, is he changed the translations in really beautiful ways. And most people don't know this because they just think from the beginning of time, the older people were like, let's get it right. So everyone knows what God has foretold. But really <laughs> Luther believed deep in his heart that God was on the side of everyone. And so the right translation was not most the most literal translation. The right translation was the one that included the most people in who God was saying God loved. And so uh, Martin Luther invents this term, children of God. It used to only say sons of God. Can you think of a couple people? I, yeah, your face tells that whole story, right? <laughs> it used to only say sons of God. And that's, and that's part of why a bunch of people were like, you know what? Maybe God only likes it when dudes preach or when men. Mm -hmm. 
And that was never what it meant, right? But Martin Luther had to be the one who had the chutzpah to like write it down. And because his Bible becomes the first one that's accessible, a whole generation of people grew up thinking that God was for them and with them through like one stroke of the pen, right? And so there's a lot of things that people try to carry down a lot of times it's the baggage of faith that we hold on to and we're like, we got to do this thing and we know we don't understand it. And I think we should pick some of the like radically loving, inclusive stuff that are is the stuff that we're carrying with us. Not the not the need to just repeat and mimic everything, but the spirit of what people were putting into that. And so like most of my being and way of being in the world is very similar to that moment that Luther had in the midst of his like I'm George and I'm a knight, right? Like, right. But can you imagine in the face of death, like people were literally trying to hunt him down and kill him because he was inspiring too many people. And he's like, you know what we should do? Tell more people God loves them. Thanks. That's kind of, that's kind of how you exist. Yeah. Like that's basically that's your, how you exist in the world. I mean, can you talk about the work you do with, with the homeless and the yeah. stuff you've done in the community? Yeah. So when I, I grew up in South Dakota, I moved to Berkeley to go to baby pastor school and uh, it, the place where the seminary was, which is where pastors go to school, that place was amongst like $3 million homes and all kinds of, and I grew up with like depression survivors who like save yeah. every UPC code on the back of a cereal box in case they can get a dollar rebate someday, like mm-hmm. and reuse every, like just keep all the cool whip jars instead of buying Tupperware kind of people. And so this idea of like having so much wealth made me really homesick. And so at age 21, I applied to work with the homeless and I became the executive director of a small little nonprofit in San Francisco. Its mission was not to feed the most people. It fed people at like four, like at 2 PM mm-hmm. when even homeless aren't hungry. Cause there's other food programs they can go to like at noon and for supper but to be like people who would eat with the homeless, to learn their stories, to be like a, a kind grandma who roots for you, even if it goes bad every Tuesday and Thursday. Right. And so, uh, and hanging out with like Franciscan sisters who just were like, no, the purpose is being here because that's, that's where God dwells is in, in the poor and the homeless and the hungry. And, and I think through that process, because a lot of the, the homeless people that I was eating with and, um, sharing stories with were people who were LGBTQ. They had been thrown out of their homes all over the world and had heard that San Francisco would be a safe place for them. And then the AIDS crisis happened Mm -hmm. and the ways that they were able to be in relationship with other people got harder. And the AIDS crisis affected people living in poverty much, much deeper and harder and long lasting than in other spheres where people might have access to medications and housing and food and regular ways of being. And there was this whole generation of LGBTQ homeless folk who just sort of were stuck. Like they were the rubbish of community Um, who needed people to care for them and they couldn't go back to their birth families. And the capitalistic, very expensive housing of San Francisco wasn't going to be the best space to be a chosen family. And so, um, so I sort of like took that role and like at age 21, like people in their forties through seventies would call me ma, like, (laughs) because I just would care about them. I had this deep sense, like I would walk home from work and uh, I would just, 
feel like, oh, I gave them a blanket and I gave them a blanket and I gave them. And I, you know how you sort of get that like urge of like, I should tuck them in. And then I never would because that would be creepy and, and <laughs> terrifying to a homeless but person. Sleeping on the didn't you tell me once yeah. that that happened to you when you were sleeping on the street yes. for, to help out and, and yes. someone brought you their blanket and you thought, oh my God, something bad's going to happen. Yeah. 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 Uh, Dominic was putting blankets on me while I was, I was sleeping out because the neighbors were like calling the police and saying that bad stuff was happening on the sidewalks. And I was like, well, I should check it out. Right. Maybe they're right. And so I slept out there and um, he, he put blankets on me and it was creeping me out. And I didn't want to look out because I was like, I'm female bodied. This could be bad. (laughs) Like I knew all the ways it could be bad. And so I like just hid and then it touched me again. And then I looked up and he just starts laughing at me because he was like, you always give me blankets. I thought I should give you blankets, right? And so <laughs> it is creepy to be tucked in like that. In the Yeah, middle. yeah. And I can see that. I can see that, especially if you don't want people in your bubble. I, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then sort of like creatively tried to figure out like, I can't solve everything about homelessness from my tiny little nonprofit. But like, I so I would sleep out for a week on the streets and kind of try to discern like, what's the thing I can do for this year? Yeah. Right. What's the thing I noticed that maybe could make a difference? And so for, there was a year I became a notary public uh, because the Republicans figured out you could get rid of 40% of people who are receiving benefits by requiring them to have an ID. Can't get your ID unless you have your birth certificate. Can't get your birth certificate unless you have your ID. And so I became the person who could sign knowing all of their names as a notary Mm. public. I was able to do that only because I knew their names. Started a community garden project uh, because a lot of the people were starting to get housing, but they didn't have like backyards or any of the things people normally think about. Like they even had to like share bathrooms and Mm -hmm. sort of the we now know about all of the wellness and care that you can find through gardening and, and meditative thought, but it wasn't something that was very readily thought about for people who have like severe paranoid schizophrenia, because people are just thinking doctors, doctors is where we should force them to go. But the plants, you can, you can hear all the voices you want and talk to a plant and they don't care, right? Like (laughs) you can, uh, the plants don't call you names. The other gardeners of different economic background, you can be smelly, you can be dirty and hang out in a garden. In fact, you're probably a better gardener if you're smelly and dirty, right? And so um, did those, did some projects where we got folk free prescription eyeglasses um, under the idea that if someone gets an easy yes, that they might want to be in relationship for working on some of the harder stuff in their lives. And I currently serve on the city of San Francisco's local homeless coordinating board, which is just like a, a federal term for the community group that gets to f- create the decision-making about what sort of point system will a city use when they figure out how to distribute housing and shelter. So in a place like San Francisco, where there's maybe 6,000 homeless a night, Mm -hmm. and you've got maybe a thousand shelter beds, what mathematical formula will you use to decide who gets those beds? Is it based on age or race or class or what percentages? And uh, so we just finished a big review of those systems because not surprising to anyone, those, the ways that things were being distributed were disproportionately harming Black and Latinx individuals in our community. And so just in the beginning stages of presenting all of those reports on on how to seek to untangle from a little bit, as much of the bias as possible now, and to keep sort of reviewing and and assessing to um, 
figure out what the next thing we need to untangle is so that some of those processes are more in line with our values as San Franciscans. And yeah. yeah. So I, I've, I've done a lot of, um, a lot of like sitting in dirty places and listening to stories um, and a lot of like trying to work inside the system for change. Um, a lot of like big protests for change. This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday and, and um, there were like 30 to 60 mile an hour winds. So we didn't get to do a lot of the like regular churchy stuff that we were planning to do. And so I got to just hang out with the homeless um, in front of uh, Glide Memorial Church, which is where I'm at now. And just like learn people's stories and talk to them and talk about why we remember our mortality and talk about grief. And uh, you learn some, you learn everything from folk who have broken hips and can't move because their wheelchairs have been stolen to talking to people who's, who are now on the second dog that has overdosed and died because it accidentally ate fentanyl from the side. Oh God. Right. So it's um, just being present with people and not afraid of their trauma and loving people where they are and believing believing stories through the perspectives that people tell them and not needing anything from folk and um, being a person who cares and, and listens as much as you can. We're currently trying to figure out how to, how to give um, palliative end-of-life care to folk. Well, yeah, you've done that, right? You've done um, end of life. I don't know what you call it, services or yeah, like lots of chaplaincy trauma yeah. care services. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. So um, we've talked a few times, and I've never actually asked you this question. I don't know if he's, if it's even like a good question, but I'm curious what what when you think of gender, what what you think of, what comes to mind? I mean, I I don't. I feel like some of those words when as a transgender person, um, it feels like your body is like a magical mystery, right? It's like being inside of the butterfly cocoon and being like, oh, we're going to do this next. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Right. And, and so I kind of think it's really funny that people like to label and classify things um, when it, when clearly it's like a pendulum that can swirl in any direction that you want to. And I, like my my best guess is that there are people who want how the flaps and the folds configure in our body to be our sex. And maybe some people want chromosomes, but they really don't because they don't want to talk about how many different chromosome variations they are. They're just looking yeah. for ways to like bundle into groups. Um, and I think gender, gender is sort of this weird dance of like, how do I want people? to classify me? How do I want to classify myself? How, how do I imagine people will treat me if I wear these kinds of cloth in these kinds of spaces? And um, like gender feels like such a, from an autistic perspective, gender feels like a made up thing that neurotypical people make up (laughs) in order to have a rule book. So my, my definition of like what autism is, is that, is that it's um, feeling like the whole world has a rule book and they won't let you read it. And then if they do let you read it and you follow it, they're mad at you for that. That's, that would be my definition of autism. And I think gender is like one of those things where it's like, 
there's this rule book we would like you to follow, but if you play with it and you go, oh, the rule is I have to have like a beard and then I can like whatever you have decided I can do now. Okay, like I'll have a beard. Oh, you're still mad I have a beard? Okay, I don't understand your rule book. Why did you give it to me? So that's what gender feels like to me. And that's not an answer at all. Um, no, it's per- It's great because the other thing I wanted to ask is the research you've done on gender in the in the Bible and how yeah. historically, like you've said this before a few times, but how historically like um, what we think gender is presented in, in the Bible is nowhere near what no. was actually happening. No, because like, especially if in your mind right now, you're thinking of the Bible and you're thinking about, remember I told you 1517 is when the printing press was invented. So if you're thinking of a bound book, you're thinking of it wrong. So like most of our oldest, probably maybe they're the most accurate because they're old. I don't know. Um, All of those pieces of paper, let's say it's paper, it's parchment, you guys, um, and papyrus. They all have giant ass holes in them, mm-hmm. all of them. And so it's like, okay, we found 400 and they all have holes in different spots, but we know that different local communities had different versions. And so like dudes, literal dudes in a room would be like, well, we like that one better than we like that one. And that one agrees with what we've been telling people. There's this, there's this letter from like back in the 600s, I think it was written by Jerome or some other guy who starts with a J, who is a church father. And he said, you can't um, share the more accurate translation of this portion of the Bible because it will ruin people's faith because we've been telling them this other thing for so long. They can't handle knowing that like it says this thing and it's, and it's even if it is what we believe and we think is true. Like, just don't keep it your secret knowledge that just like faithful dudes know, right? Right. And I think it's something like that. So when people look back at these oldest, oldest texts, there's like all these places where, for example, Noah, people know the Noah story, right? Big boat, animals in twosie twosies and a flood of the world. Noah, fun fact, his name means selfish because he didn't want anyone else saved. He didn't even try. Uh, (laughs) But Noah sometimes called he when he does things that might be gendered female, like building a tent, his pronouns become she in the Mm -hmm. oldest documents. Now, what did ye oldie like dudes in the room say? Well, they must have just made a mistake when they wrote that down. Let's just not do that. Or it's still in the text, but a rabbi, because most people just the rabbi reads it and the rabbi just switches it. So it's not confusing, right? When Jonah goes into the whale, Jonah gets swallowed by Pinocchio is Jonah. Okay, so Jonah goes into the whale because Jonah doesn't want to do what God wants God to do. Goes inside the whale. After Jonah comes out of the whale, the whale is a different sex. Mm. Why? Don't know. I'm going to blame Jonah. (laughs) There are all these times, Rebecca in the the Hebrew Bible, um, when she's doing activities that were thought to be male, single bachelor dude activities, like being a shepherd, gets the pronouns he in the Bible, right? There are, um, Joseph has this princess dress that he wears. Joseph, Joseph in the amazing Technicolor coat. It's like a rainbow princess fairy dress, right? There, 
in the in the earliest imagining of how how God works, there were these ideas that gender was fluid. They used to believe, and this is very unfeminist, so don't believe this, but just be excited that transness existed in the past, okay? Okay. Uh, so they used to believe that if you were a woman who could have babies, you were a different thing than mm. a woman who could not have babies. It's not true. Your worth is not even defined in any of that. You know that, right? Right, of course. So when in the Bible it says, after a hundred years, Elizabeth was able to now have a baby, they thought she had a sex change, you guys, like 12 different times. There were times where people went from being the kind of person who could have a baby to the kind of person. Those switches were Like that's the only plausible explanation that nothing else could have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Turn your feminist brain off for a second. I already asked you to do that. (laughs) Now put on your trans brain and be like, isn't that kick-ass? There were a lot of like gender changes all the time in the body. Okay, now turn. That is so rude and stupid that they thought that about giving birth. I'll just turn them both on at the same time. Yeah, turn them both on and have one be like- that's terrible theology and awesome that trans people exist, right? Yeah. That happened all the time. There was a, a, a term in the Hebrew called tum-tum, which was someone who was thought to be both all the time in an inseparable way, mm. right? You were, you were both male and female. It was not a defined thing, right? The, the idea that if, if the creation of the world happens because this mud guy Adam, Adam just means mud. It doesn't, it's not like a boy's name. If whatever Adam is has both male and female in it until God puts him to sleep like surgery and then performs a surgery, the very, what does it mean that the original human created by God has a gender confirmation surgery? So there's, there's lots of banana stuff. Yeah. And Jesus in the Jesus community, they talk about now that there is Jesus, there's no more male more, nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. All of these classifications of you're this or you're this are gone. But still, a lot of people who like Jesus are still talking about whether or not you're a boy or a girl. And it's bananas. I don't get it. I just think there was there were ways in which people believed that if God is bigger than us and God is smarter than us and God can know things more than us, there was a lot less fear that we could do something that would make God mad. Because if God's bigger and smarter and made us, uh, maybe those in-between wacky places are the like God's favorite. That's how I like to think about things. Yeah. So we are relatively the same age. We're very young. Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we both came up at a time where HIV AIDS was on the rise, was starting and then was becoming something that people talked about a lot. And I think I could be wrong, but um, for, for me, one of the definitive moments of my life was Matthew Shepard's murder. And I think I've read that that was something yep. that shaped you too, right? Yeah, Matthew Shepard died. And um, for those of you who don't know that story, Matthew Shepard was an individual who was HIV positive, who maybe was on a date with a guy he met at a bar and maybe he wasn't. But Mm -hmm. at some point, uh, the person in the bar beats the crap out of him and ties him to a fence and leaves him to die in In Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Laramie, Wyoming? Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. I get my Western states mixed up. It's okay. But the fence that he was tied to looked like a cross. And so the picture of the fence where he had died went the 1990s version of viral, Mm -hmm. right? And 
was on the cover of every paper and magazine and talked about forever. And, um, and so this sort of created a like panic moment for the United States where people were kind of casually talking about whether or not they thought uh, gay people, um, I wish they had the vocabulary we have now, but gay people, whether or not they deserve to die or not based on who they are. And the majority of the population in the United States said die. Um, and some of that vitriol came from churchy people. Uh, churchy people used to have TV shows. The churchy people of almost every single denomination, the fancy higher up in charge people said AIDS was great because AIDS people, because gay people deserve to die. Mm -hmm. and advocated that there not be research into how to end their pandemic that still exists today, that there not be uh, funding for medicine, and that um, people be thrown out of churches, not allowed to have communion, um, all of those things in the midst of a pandemic. So imagine this current pandemic where you're trying to figure out whether or not you should wash your groceries, and all of the things that came from that early fear, but in the midst of it, people are saying, yeah, we're not going to research this or. Yep. We're not going to study it. We don't care. You deserve it. You should just not like, why are you breathing anyway? Mm -hmm. And um, so it created a lot of resiliency in the queer community, which is really lovely. And amongst people of faith, there is a very clear generational difference between those who cared for people dying of AIDS and those who did not go through that experience in the church community. And I think part of the growing pains right now in churches is people who don't understand why it feels like this really tight knit group that they can't get into. And a lot of that has to do with where people were and how they cared for people during that AIDS crisis. Watching people get to a place where they would rather be kicked out of a church Yep. Then participate in a church that speaks like that. I think both both the the queer people who are acting up and the the churchy people who were like, kick us out of your church. In the Lutheran church, uh, a movement grew to start ordaining and allowing gay people to be pastors, even though it violated the contemporary rules, but followed those ye old timey rules from Martin Luther. Um, and they were like, fine, throw us out of the church if you if you, if you feel that strongly, you kick us out because we're going to follow God and faith and what is clearly ethical in this moment rather than pandemic of, I don't know, yucky, yucky hate. hate. Yeah, It's interesting because when I think about everything you just said is hundred percent. When I think about that time, I also think about the resiliency that queer people had to adopt by, by no reason other than no choice. Like you and, you know, things like making the AIDS quilt and placing it in places where you had to see it, like taking it to D.C., taking it. I mean, my little town had 1,200 people in it, and somebody there thought it was important enough to bring that thing in and mm -hmm. show this tiny town of people like here. This is the problem here, right here. These are real people mm -hmm. with real things happening. It, I don't, don't want to say silver lining because that's not true. But if there is something to say, OK, look, this is where this resiliency came from, this like we've got to take care of ourselves. Yeah. And I think there have been moments of history that are like that throughout different kind of time periods in the world where it's like, no one's going to take care of us unless we do it ourselves. Back in the, in the like forties, 
there were people who were trans and no one would give them any information. And it was, you could be arrested for wearing the buttons on the wrong side of your shirt. Girls wear buttons on this side and boys wear buttons on this I side. I know. <laughs> in and, and that law was in existence all the way until like 1976 here in mm -hmm. San Francisco. And they said it was because they wanted to be able to arrest people who dress in costumes who might rob a bank before they rob the bank. And it's like, it was only ever used to arrest trans people saying they were wearing a costume or people who were doing drag. And there were people who would create their own newsletters and handbooks. And, and they would say, you know, if you go to Seattle, there's this one doctor. And if you tell him you have tattoos, he'll think, oh, you must really be trans. And like, this is the secret code you have to say to get care. Um, or this is the number of milligrams I get in my testosterone treatment and it mm -hmm. is working for me. So tell your doctor who knows nothing about this, that this might be the dose or like, here's how you can cut the top of a yogurt container so that you can use a urinal if you're driving through a place and then you don't want someone to find something in your pocket because they might beat you up and no one's going to think the yogurt lid is trans related. Right. And right. so- People were sharing all of these stories to like save their own lives, to be able to get care. All these moments where, where trans folk, many of them faithful trans people uh, do amazingly awesome things kind of because there's persecution. There's a person named Thecla. Sometimes it's spelled with a C and sometimes with a K. And even, even a book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. Yeah, Paul from the Bible. And Thecla, Thecla's mom wanted her to get married, but she like heard Paul out the window talking about celibacy and following Jesus. And she's like, I'd way rather be celibate and follow Jesus than marry this dude my mom picked. And her mom seemed like a jerk, right? So she converts to Christianity and she, and her mom's like, well, if you're not going to get married, I'm going to have you killed. And so her mom gets the town to like try to burn her at the stake, but she doesn't burn because she's Thecla, right? And um, and so she then, like her faith saves her and she like leaves the town and starts to follow Paul, cuts her hair into the male hairstyle, starts wearing male clothes, starts following him around. A lot of the like people who write about it will say that like, oh, she just, you know, didn't want to get married. So, but it wasn't about boy stuff, but it was about boy stuff, you guys. And um <laughs> And there are all these people called the Desert Fathers who like in early, early Christendom before um, the Roman dictator created most of the rules that govern our current Christian church in around the 300s and 400s times. Um, so before the 300s and 400s in like the 200s, you've got all these people who are just following Jesus by like living alone and praying in the deserts. And they're, they're called the Desert Fathers, but many of them were people who were assigned female at birth and they took on male names and they, there are a lot of them. And I'm not saying names for them because we don't know what their chosen names were. And um, because a lot of them were outed when people looked at their private parts when they were going to bury them. Mm. And so people told stories, told public stories about their private parts after their death. And I want you to know that there are trans people who lived in those moments, but I don't want to participate in telling the gossip stories about their private parts. And so there are all of these amazing faithful trans people who have been around longer than uh, Christianity. And if you believe it, the way I told the Adam story, maybe the first people created, uh, but there's always been trans people and there's always been trans people of faith in the same way 
that like there are plumbers of faith and plumbers who kind of are jerks there are trans people of faith and there I'm sure are some trans people who are jerks but like there's a full <laughs> spectrum of people but if you're someone who's looking for heroes and sheroes don't believe people who are in a like Frankenstein mob telling you this is brand new and I'm mad mm. Mm-hmm. When there are like fish that change sex and if there aren't any roosters, the hens will change. Like there have been in nature, banana slugs. And so like there are all these animals that have always done this. Humans have always had experiences like this. There is nothing new under the sun, y'all. Um, I mean, listen, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Jurassic Park nailed this when they had the dinosaurs change sex from, right? Because they made all women dinosaurs thinking, oh, we got this under thing. control. And then again, Jurassic Park is a life lesson for all of us. (laughs) Life finds a way for sure. Yeah, exactly. And that's true in faith communities. They're in in the Nicene Creed, the very first, the very first act of the Nicene Council. Remember I said constant um, that, that, you know, like Constantine, Constantine, who's the Roman emperor. Remember the Romans? They killed Mm. Jesus. (laughs) 300 years later, they were like, we should be Christians. Um, Constantine creates this council and they create the Nicene Creed. Most people know it as that really boring long creed, Um, but, but they actually made several decisions at their very first gathering. And the very first of their decisions was we no longer can allow trans people to be uh, pastors or bishops. There were so many trans people as pastors and bishops. They were like, we should not do this anymore because they might, they might be the ones who like win. And Constantine's, his motivating factor is he had just won a civil war and he wanted to make rules, the very first rules about who could be a pastor and who could not be a pastor, who's in and who's out, were not litmus tests about faith. They were about which side of the war, the the civil war you had been on, and if you were in favor of Constantine or the other dude who lost, right? And And it was about how can the bishops who follow Constantine be the bishops who are respected, not those way more famous trans bishops at the time, right? And and so there have been gender non-conforming, gender, gender radical, gender diverse, um, folk who pick a spot in the binary, people who reject the binary, people who um, just go off and live as live alone in the woods and and just pray. And so they don't even have need for words like that because trees don't give crap right <laughs> and so all of that has has existed for a very long period of time but that doesn't mean people now are nicer about it or even if you come with facts it doesn't change other people's very violent feelings and I think that's the hardest part of being a faithful pe- person these days is like most people don't care that cons- about how how unjust rules were created. They just know that they're comfortable and changing rules feels hard. And they don't know, they don't really care necessarily that trans people existed forever because it still feels scary and sad if your own kids are using words you don't know how to use and telling you you're bad because you don't use them. Or right. if, if it feels like the world is changing or might become more dangerous. And so I think I, I think that our contemporary church doesn't necessarily know what to do when things feel new. Um, similarly to like the 60s and 70s, as the world shifts, I think the church just sort of gets um, hunkers down a little bit and waits for society to be a little better at things. We're all children of God, but it takes longer than it ought to. 
I always like to ask you this question. What gives you hope? I find hope in little moments of like uncreatable beauty, Mm. right? Like stained glass windows dancing is one of those. Um, Whatever that feeling is, people talk about at the top of a mountain when you can breathe again after hiking there. Um, Ocean, water and ocean is that for me. I just got back from a trip to Antarctica because that's how far I have to go to sometimes find hope. Um, and there were like <laughs> whales everywhere and little baby penguins swinging in the water. And um, I have had to make finding hope and collecting enough of it in my pockets. Like I had to get cargo pants to hold the hope so that I could have regular pants for my pockets full of hard stuff. <laughs> and, and so um, that has meant regularly traveling to places where there are beautiful or new or interesting things to see. It means um, sometimes like I have, I couldn't necessarily tell you what the flaps and folds of my bodies will be next month, but I can tell you which foods can bring me joy for like five minutes. And that for me is enough some days, like knowing a Starbucks order or a Pete's order or a caribou coffee, depending upon where you're located is the most ethical choice go good for you. But there are days where I just need to order the thing Mm -hmm. that's make me have a couple moments of joy. Uh, Babies laughing is always on the list of that. You could be like, well, at least we got science or at least we got a vacation coming up to Mexico. At least we've got a new day. Yeah. 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 At least we've got um, St. Joseph, right? At least we've got um, whatever person you like. And so like, I don't care if you have faith in God, but have faith in at least something. Mm-hmm. Have faith in in nerdy stuff. Have faith in pets in your life. Have faith in something that's going to get you to tomorrow. Um, and then if you if you do manage to have that full ladder of resiliency and wellness, then I would love you to speak out as much as you can so people know two people that can be a reason that they stay alive today. And then we'll have five people and then we'll have 20 people, right? And um, I I gain a lot of strength from reading the stories of other people who have done hard things. Um, There was a period of time where uh, I was the first trans bishop uh, ever elected to be a bishop since Constantine made those rules. And part of what helped me get through the very long short time that I did that is reading the stories of other historic people who were the first to mm. be up and what it was like in each month of their life and to be like, just knowing that there are people who have done hard things, who have managed historic roles, um, get yourself some, some role models, not because you need to be perfect or a superhero, but because it's good to know you're not the only one who is faking it some days. And you're not the only one who's heartbroken and you're not the only one who's done a thing, right? But the message of the day is just like all the broken that you are doesn't make you worthless. 
right? All the broken that you are is what makes you human and is what makes you beautiful and someone else's, you're someone else's stained glass window dancing, even if you haven't found each other, right? Thank you so much for listening. You can find more episodes of Most Popular on iTunes and SoundCloud. More information, including additional resources for educators, can be found on my website, which is adriantreer-beanick.com. And the website is listed in episode notes in case you want to know how to spell all of that. Um, I'm on Instagram at at dr.adrienntb. That's at dr.adrienntb. As always, thank you so much for my student, to my students for the encouragement to keep making these episodes, and I will see you next time.